Hello, my name is David Kokel. Uh, today I will report on an ongoing experiment. Teaching graduate level students of architecture how to use phenomenology as a technique of discovery to assist them in their design process. In four sections, the paper will convey the challenges of grounding non-philosophers in the demanding literature of phenomenology and its place in modern thought, and then move on to outline the basic features of the course. Exposure to the orthodox methodologies of phenomenology, highlighting examples of phenomenological analyses of place and space by philosophers and practicing architects, and an exploration of different ways of doing phenomenology collaboratively. However, most of the paper will be focused on the practical dimension of the course, where every member has a say in refining a collaborative methodology aimed at phenomenologically exploring a different architectural theme every week over, of, part, over the latter part of the term, all of which are chosen by the class as a whole. These explorations have adopted a variety of techniques over the years. Uh, some of these techniques have been failures, while others have enjoyed at least some degree of success. But what I mainly want to show in this paper is that teaching those who reside outside of phenomenology how to do it for themselves requires a level of engagement on the part of the instructor that betters their own understanding of what phenomenology is, both in theory and more importantly, in practice. In the fall of 2000, I accepted a position teaching philosophy at the University of Detroit Mercy, which is also the home of a small but well-regarded school of architecture where students matriculate as college freshmen but graduate with a master's degree. Roughly three years after my arrival, an architecture student in his master's year approached me at the urging of Tony Martinico, a professor in the architecture school, who regularly taught an architectural history and theory course and who was in essence the school's in-house philosopher. This course included a unit on phenomenology about which the student had expressed curiosity. And it was in this context that Martinico sent the student to me, knowing that I had written my dissertation on Husserl, Heidegger, and Merleau-Ponty. The student and I agreed to do a directed reading on the phenomenology of place in fall 2004, which was run in the Masters of Liberal Studies or the MLS program so he could earn graduate credit for the course. The class was centered on Ed Casey's getting back into place, though we supplemented this with essays from the later Heidegger. The reading was successful enough that we did another uh, the following term in the winter of 2005 called Dwelling in the Spirit of Place. This time, the main focus was the later Heidegger, read alongside of Christian Norberg Schulz, a Norwegian architect who was deeply influenced by Heidegger. A total of four master's level architecture students participated under the MLS rubric, and the course was also cross-listed so a philosophy major could take the course for credit. In fall 2007, we saw the debut of an official master's level course appearing under the architecture rubric entitled Architecture and Phenomenology, which is the title it retains to the present day. While the two directed readings preceding this course were narrowly focused on uh, two or three texts, here the number of readings was greatly expanded. Not only did we read 
uh, portions of both early and late Heidegger, Norberg, Schultz, and Casey, but also selections from Husserl, Merleau-Ponty, and Bachelard, as well as architectural theorists and practitioners with a phenomenological bent, such as Peter Zumthor, Michael Benedict, Kent Bloomer and Charles Moore, Stephen Hull, Johanny Palasma, and Alberto Perez Gomez, among others. If viewed casually from the outside, this course and the directed readings that preceded it would appear very similar to what one might see in a graduate philosophy department. Small readings or seminars focused on the exegesis of dense texts, weekly presentations of student per se, construct, uh, constructive discussion and critique, and the production of research papers, albeit with a focus on architecture. But one very noteworthy development in the 2007 seminar was experimentation with phenomenological description that organically emerged from our class sessions. This was to radically change the nature of the course. Over the next two years, and in discourse with Tony Martinico, I completely reconceptualized the course. In its first three iterations, it was basically a theory course from front to back, that began with a brief overview of the motivation behind and genesis of phenomenology and its place within the context of the late modern tradition, and then spent the remainder of the class focused on phenomenology's relationship to space, place, and the built environment. What I wanted to do with the course was to trim back and focus the reading list on methodology and practice so as to allow time for exploring how students could actually undertake and incorporate phenomenological analysis into their own design process, especially in regard to their final thesis project. Ideally, I wanted to end up with a seminar portion of the class that laid down a solid theoretical and methodological foundation over five to six weeks, and then devote the remainder of the term to a series of workshops focused on collaboratively generating phenomenological descriptions. After this uh, revision, the course assumed the following structure in the fall of 2009. The first few weeks were comprised of four main elements. First, introductory lectures on Husserl, Heidegger, and Merleau-Ponty, situated phenomenology as a corrective to Cartesian dualism, and the reductionistic tendencies of the hard sciences. This was followed by exposure to phenomenological method, primarily through Husserl and other secondary sources. A third element of the class presented various phenomenological treatments of architectural themes through the work of Ed Casey, Kimberly Dovey, and Norberg Schulz. Finally, time was spent looking at examples of collaborative phenomenology through the work of Stuart Grant, David Seaman, and especially Herbert Spiegelberg. After the middle of the term, the class decided which phenomena we would collectively analyze over the balance of the term and started to experiment with a common method we would deploy towards this end. Since 2009, this basic structure has been retained and the courses run roughly every two years with anywhere from eight to 14 students, though 10 students seems to be optimal. It should be noted at this point that the students themselves have always presented their own challenge to the course. On the one hand, as a group, 
UDM's architecture students are among the most highly motivated on campus. And given the nature of their program, they are not entirely innocent of the ways of theory. On the other hand, it is important that the course be mostly comprised of students who are genuinely curious about phenomenology in particular, and not students just picking up a master's level elective to fill out their schedules. However, even in classes where the majority is enthusiastic about the topic, there is still the fact that these are not philosophy majors. They are not regular inhabitants of dark texts. So how to help them grasp the ideas of a foundational figure like Husserl, whose dense neo-Kantian prose is formidable even to the initiated? Recognizing that reading a translation of one of Husserl's own introductions to phenomenology was out of the question for these students, at first I taught a rewritten selection from my dissertation uh, chapters, from one of my dissertation chapters on Husserl. I have recently come to realize that even this was too technical for these students, and I have replaced it with a paper that I presented to an educated but non-philosophical audience that in part serves as a more general introduction to Husserl's phenomenology. Here a worry might arise, especially among philosophical phenomenologists, that this might be an instance of applied phenomenology, sacrificing theoretical subtlety in a way that betrays the promise of phenomenology in its fullness. This is a concern I share. But I would like to suggest that another, perhaps even superior way to illustrate this promise is to show how phenomenology is not so much the application of a theory, but rather the adoption of an attitude that reveals the richness of experience in its givenness. In other words, why not teach theory through the practice, or at least alongside the practice, especially for students who are used to thinking of theory in terms of practice, in this case, architectural design. This strategy required me to amplify the methodological aspects of phenomenology while remaining sensitive to how the required readings relate to problems of interest to this particular set of students. And over the last 10 years, this has resulted in other changes to the syllabus. For example, I eventually decided to drop Heidegger mainly because his nostalgic and rustic approach to lived space does not relate well to the urban issues we tend to grapple with in the seminar. And aside from his brief homage to Husserl at the start of Being in Time, he doesn't talk all that much about method. Norberg Scholz shares a similar sensibility and is also silent on method, so he too has been left behind. Merleau-Ponty presents a reinterpretation of Husserl's method of the epoche in his preface to the phenomenology of perception, but is light on practical details. However, I have incorporated uh, uh, the work of the late and underappreciated Canadian philosopher Sam Mallon, whose technique of body hermeneutics makes Merleau-Ponty's approach to phenomenology much more coherent to my students. But even before the first day of class, I try to prepare the ground for these textual encounters by having students begin an exercise I call microphenomenology, centered on a common everyday object. Here I have students post responses to online prompts like, describe your favorite chair. What I'm looking for here are factical descriptions of the students' chairs, which are often accompanied by reasons for why the students like their particular chairs. 
I then share these descriptions with the class and follow up with three more prompts. What aspects of these chairs are described? Which of these aspects tend to predominate across these descriptions? Are there any outliers among these descriptions that depart from these predominant aspects? These questions invite students to take note of the terms in which the chairs have been collectively described, for example, in terms of materiality, texture, color, comfort, functionality, and so on. This resulting list of qualities is still factical, but the students have taken one step back from the particularity of their own favorite chairs. Usually at this point, the class has finished reading the paper on Husserl, and I can use it to show how in the chair exercise we have been attempting to perform, admittedly in a rough and ready way, the phenomenological reduction. In the same paper, I illustrate Husserl's method by undertaking another microphenomenology, this time of litter, and use this analysis to talk about what facticity means in phenomenological terms. I then return to the chair exercise and ask the students to respond to another prompt. If you stripped away the facticity of these chairs, what would be left? You will recognize that this is an attempt to get students to perform an eidetic reduction. This typically fails because the responses devolve into errant generalizations that don't address the particular way in which chairs appear in the world. I initially respond with questions that encourage students to reflect more deeply on the how of the phenomenon. But as Husserl himself recognizes, this is more difficult than it might at first seem. I've spent a great deal of time thinking about how, on the one hand, I can flesh out what Merleau-Ponty means by slackening the intentional threads which attach us to the world, and on the other hand, how I can simplify Husserl's various elaborations of the epoche and its attendant reductions in order to guide students into that unfamiliar realm between self and world so that they can have an originary encounter with experience. This requires more than just probing questions, and, there, and here is an amalgam of prompts I have deployed, deployed to this end. Start from where you are with a specific instance of a particular phenomenon, either before you in direct experience or held in your memory. Don't look down on this phenomenon to explain it or judge it. Rather, look over its shoulder, be with it, be attentive to its gestures, to its way of being. Let it appear on its own terms and try to speak for it. Begin with how the facts of this particular phenomenon appear and then strip them away. After the facts have been stripped away, take an account of what is left over. This is the realm of phenomenological reflection. A field of essential structures should begin to emerge. Explore this field through the use of obvious counterexamples and analogies. Take great care not to leave the subject behind. Pay careful attention to the relationship between the object and the subject, between the world and the thing itself. Of every description derived from phenomenological reflection, ask, how so? In what way? Then refine your description. Repeat. Be suspicious of binaries. Experience almost always appears along a continuum. Take care not to dissolve ambiguities that are essential to the experience. Never say of an experience that it is immersive. Every experience is immersive once properly attended to. Rather, 
describe how it is immersive. All phenomenological descriptions are always provisional because experience is inexhaustible. Begin again and go deeper. The point of these prompts is to build on the more technical information delivered in my lectures introducing phenomenology, but leaving behind many of the more technical terms in favor of language that will allow my students more linguistically unencumbered access to the things themselves. Note that the language used is not particular, particularly literary or evocative, but rather attempts to faithfully describe the dimensions of the conceptual space within which a practicing phenomenologist must function and to properly position the student phenomenologist in relation to the phenomenon to be described. Based on my own experience of phenomenological practice, I make some general suggestions about how the students might explore the phenomenological field, for example, through counterexamples and analogies. But ultimately, I encourage my students to discover their own way of linguistically gearing into experience. These strategies introduced during the microphenomenology exercise are carried forward and integrated into the workshop portion of the course where the focus is on the various phenomena collectively generated by the class. Here I have encountered students to develop a common method for taking up these analyses. A good adventurous cohort of students will often create its own methodological approach from scratch, but many choose to elaborate on a method from a previous cohort, which are all archived on the course webpage. Though these various methods have taken many forms over the years, they have followed a general pattern in their evolution. In between class meetings, uh, students start with guided individual reflections, then move to a phase of refinement with a weekly partner, culminating in a presentation of provisional insights and further refinement by the cohort as a whole, during the weekly two and a half hour class period. A great deal of experimentation has taken place within the context of this common method and has included peer-reviewed free writing, sketches, illustrations, word clouds, meaning schematics, which are similar to concept or mind maps, collaborative narration, video presentation, graphics, and photographic imagery, all projected or inscribed onto two large walls comprised of whiteboard material. The high level of collaboration involved uh, not only uh, mirrors the pedagogy of the School of Architecture, it also reflects Husserl's regular contention that the practice of phenomenology should be collaborative in nature in order to pull individuals out of their particular subjectivity so they have the possibility of achieving transcendental subjectivity. The purpose of the class, remember, is to explore how phenomenological practice can inform the practice of design, whether it be site analysis, the consideration of different forms of spatial gesture within built environments, or what have you. The point has never been to establish a phenomenological school of architecture. It has always been to facilitate a way for students to engage in a deeper, more experientially informed dialogue within their craft. At the end of every workshop class period, we typically spend some time assessing how closely the week's reflections have come to achieving this goal and discussing how our method could be improved. 
while keeping this goal in mind. I also take copious notes during a major debrief at the end of the term where the class addresses ways that future iterations of the course could be improved. As I speak, we are now two weeks into our first completely online version of the course due to the coronavirus crisis. How this will impact the quality of the class is a report for another time. For now, I want to bring you up to date on some of the major changes we will be experimenting with this term. First, I have more tightly condensed the introductory lectures in order to make more room for the workshop portion of the class. And starting with this year's microphenomenology, I am being far more aggressive using narratives to make sure students get what it means to intuit things phenomenologically. I have made these narratives part of the grading schema and will be marking them strictly and returning them to students with the portions struck out that are not phenomenologically relevant. I have come to the conclusion, at least provisionally, that one way to lever students into the mysterious in-between space of the intentional field is to be more direct in pointing out what is not part of that space or what only lies at its periphery. At the same time, I want to deploy a complementary and more affirmative strategy to the same end. Word clouds are often a feature of my students' benchmark presentations in their program that visually presents which terms are used most frequently in a passage that has been inputted into a computer program. I've experimented with this technology in the past, but it has been recently improved by allowing users to eliminate parts of speech, such as articles and conjunctions, that tend to obscure the nouns and especially the verbs that are more essential to phenomenological intuition. By inputting stu student narratives into a word cloud program, I believe that I can illustrate both overlaps and divergencies among the students, as well as showing how progressive word clouds move from the factical to the essential as the class becomes more adept at assuming a phenomenological attitude in the generation of their descriptions. It is my hope that bringing these word clouds into juxtaposition with the rigorously marked narratives will better help students understand what it means to experience something phenomenologically. A third refinement of the class, a third refinement of the class, will be a stronger focus on the British-born landscape architect, James Corner. I was introduced to Corner's work by Tony Martinico, who has employed Corner's technique of eidetic operations in his studios. These operations work to generate eidetic images, which on Corner's account uh, can produce an appearance of what is otherwise not visible and trace out patterns of formation, occupation, activity, time, and becoming, so as to act as a means of both discovering and creating meaning in space. I immediately recognized the phenomenological predilection in Corner's thinking, and in the class we have experimented with eidetic images in recent years. However, this term, I want to read Corner more closely and show more explicitly how his technique relates to the methodological dimensions of both Husserl and Merleau-Ponty and use the aforementioned narrations and word clouds as ways of helping students think their way into the eidetic images they produce. Finally, 
just as I always challenge my students to work on the evocative power of their linguistic expression, this term, I will be challenging myself to improve my visual literacy. This is a language in which my students are far more fluent. I have often confessed to them that when I visit a museum, I'm more likely to study the placard next to a painting instead of the painting itself. In an attempt to address this deficiency, I have acquired a Photoshop account and engaged a friend with fine arts training to teach me the fundamentals of this program so I can learn at least the basics of my students' visual lexicon and try my own hand at eidetic imagery. There are other more minor changes I've made to the, this iteration of the course, but to list them would take me beyond my time. In closing, let me just say that this is the class that has brought me into contact with scores of engaged and engaging students, including one who went on to complete graduate work at McGill University School of Architecture after being accepted to the Harvard School of Design, and another who just completed a master's thesis entirely devoted to phenomenologically understanding how architectural spaces are shaped through embodiment. Over these very gratifying years, I have come to the realization that the biggest challenge to any engaged phenomenology is motivating others to see or intuit what phenomenology can reveal to them, and that the best way of doing this is giving them the tools to do phenomenology for themselves, which then teaches the teacher in turn. Thank you.